Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, CISA wants feedback from industry on both hardware and software vulnerabilities to cross the supply chain. We hear from uh, some thoughtful executives on what some of that feedback will look like. But first, joining us today is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Senior Director uh, of the Center for Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is also a Senior Advisor on the Bipartisan Cyberspace Solarium Commission, having been its Executive Director. Uh, Mark is now uh, also the co-author, along with Laura Bate, a former Solarium Commission Senior Director and a New American uh, a New America Foundation uh, think tank uh, fellow on cyber uh, of the latest report from the commission, Workforce Development Agenda for the National Cyber Director that finds that the nation is at a critical juncture in addressing uh, the rapidly growing demand for cyber workers, or rather I should say on the federal side, falling woefully short of filling that demand. The market simply has not corrected for that shortage, uh, which has steadily grown worse. Mark, uh, thanks so very, very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Vago. Uh, it's it's always an honor and uh, pleasure having you on the program. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Mark, uh, thanks again for joining us. As always, our mutual friend, JC Vega, uh, one of the co-founders of the Army Cyber Institute, uh, has repeatedly noted on this program and elsewhere, right, that the fundamental model we have is not working, that we're not generating the workforce. You know, we were saying we're going to have a half million gap. We didn't address the half million gap. It became an 800 million gap. Then it's a 1 million gap. Now it's apparently at 1.5 million. Uh, and you and Laura found that that the market is just not fulfilling this, uh, which is unusual because the market has a tendency of, of addressing workforce demand. First, break this problem down uh, into component parts. What exactly is the problem? Why are we not generating the cyber talent base, the workforce that we need? Laura and I did a, did a report, a very specific report on, on the federal cyber workforce, but we did certainly understand national trends. And, and I'd, I'd back up by saying, you know, you and I have routinely talked about the technology we need in cyber and the, the policies and authorities and processes. Those are two legs of the stool. Cybersecurity is a three-legged stool, technology, processes and policies, and then people. And if any one of these elements is, is weak, the, you know, the, the uh, structure topples. We uh, have done a great job fielding cutting edge technology. We're working hard on new processes. And this people issue, as JC Vega mentioned to you, is persistent. You know, in, in 1999, we looked at this when I was working at the National Security Council. It's same sort of thing. We, we had about a, uh, two, two thirds of our jobs filled and one third of our jobs empty inside the federal government. Uh, by 2010, there was uh, 10 years later, the numbers were the same in the federal government and we started to get indications that the national level was the same way, um, just 10 times more people, but it was a two thirds man, one thirds empty kind of rubric. And it's been that way very consistently as you look at, there's a, something called the CyberSeq, it's a you know, heat map of jobs. It's shown a 30 to 35% job availability for a decade. That is, it's mind blowing because as you said, usually market forces will close something like this. Look, when we looked inside the federal government, what we found was, first and foremost, a complete lack of data, right? There's actually a law that says collect data on the workforce. It has been poorly and improperly implemented over the last seven years through three administrations. Um, the Office of Personnel Management, who's responsible for it, has not been able to convince the 101 federal agencies 
to submit consistent, persistent data into the system. So they really can't tell you what kind of people they need exactly and what, um, and what the exact numbers are. So bad data, I think the bad data also exists in the national workforce. Inside the government, we have a unique thing where we have poor coordination. In other words, OPM, the Office of Personal Management, as I said, in charge, but in no way able to influence the various organizations. So we need kind of strategic leadership to coordinate things. I don't think you can ever develop that exactly in the national cyber workforce because no one's responsible for it. Although big companies like Microsoft can and step up, and I'll talk about an initiative they're doing to kind of fill this gap. A third big issue is diversity in the workforce. And here the diversity is less about race and more about gender. Um, 24% uh, to 28%, depending how you're measuring it, of the uh, cyber workforce is female. That's obviously very low. And then when you look at cyber security leadership positions, it's more in the 11 to 14% range. So these numbers are drastically um, insufficient. And so we have to figure out how to entice and, and make, ava you know, make available billets in the cybersecurity workforce for women. So data, coordination, diversity. And then one really big one is uh, the, the, there's a structural constraint. People tend to say, oh, for that level of job in the government, say GS 10 or 11, or in the private sector job that's making 75, 80,000, you need a college degree. Well, uniquely in the cybersecurity world, the college degree doesn't necessarily impute the, the kind of level of technical expertise required. It's really more cyber certificates. So sometimes someone with a GED and one or two of the right certificates and a little bit of experience is a much more desirable hire than someone with a bachelor's or master's degree. But when you're pulling them into a, a structurally constrained process like federal hiring, you know, the person who you really need is offered a GS-7 and the person who you don't need is offered a GS-12. Right. Um, and, I, and most of us understand that GS-7 is not going to be a competitive salary uh, with, with the private sector. So those structural constraints. And finally, I would mention the HR staffs are not good at cyber, what I just talked about. Now, that doesn't mean at a cyber firm they're not and at, you know, places like Microsoft or Fortress or whatever, they don't have competent HR dealing with cyber. But I'm talking about at the really big critical infrastructure sites inside the federal government. We just don't have that kind of culture of innovation that's gonna be necessary in a really fluid environment that's cybersecurity. It, they tend to be much more inflexible bureaucrats and don't allow for the system to work. So that's a lot of constraints I just mentioned that, that really put, put a hamper on getting the right workforce in place. So, so what is the right kind of federal workforce that we need, right? Ultimately, you know, we, we've just discussed some of the impediments to that. What is the workforce that we need and how do we need to think of it from a systemic standpoint? Because I know that one of the things, uh, the great things that this administration is bringing to this with uh, Chris Inglis as National Cyber Director, Jen Easterly, uh, and, and everybody else who's involved in this is to take a different and systemic sort of approach to the problem, as opposed to looking at each of uh, the each. What, what is, I want to get to how we get there, but what, what, is, what are the characteristics of the federal workforce that we need? And, and the workforce more generally, right? Because the, the federal workforce then goes into commercial, commercial then comes back into federal, right? I mean, ideally you want uh, as virtuous a cycle as you, as you can uh, from, from this ecosystem. No, you're exactly right. I mean, there, there are actual, there are like attributes you wanna have in your process. And the first one I'd say is, um, the first attribute is have all the data you need, understand the exact problem you're facing. The second is have a leadership 
and coordination structure in place to provide top-down guidance. It's not managed from the top, but the, the guidance and the impetus for success has to come from the White House. And that's, as you mentioned, I'll just say right off the bat, yeah, that, that's Chris Inglis in this case. And, and, I, and I think something he's embracing. Um, we have to have um, uh, cyber workforce budgets that are aligned to the vulnerabilities and challenges. And that's very hard, you know, in, in of the 101 uh, federal agencies, only two or three think cyber is their number one job, like CISA, right? Uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency or Cyber Command or National Security Agency. The, va- the, others, the other 98 are like, no, that's not our primary responsibility. The problem is when it comes budget time and it's, uh, do I pay for more, you know, to have the right cybersecurity personnel or do I pay to have a few more food inspectors? You know, the Department of Agri- Agriculture will almost always go for number two, the food inspectors. Well, at some point, your food inspectors can no longer communicate their results on your networks because you have consistently underinvested in cybersecurity. So that's just kind of an idea of aligning your, your budget. Um, and then finally, you really have to have the right hiring authorities and pay flexibilities. And this is both in the private sector and in the federal government. You have to understand, as I said earlier, certain certificates and certain experience is, is of, of a certain value. Um, if I could do one other one, as I think about it, it's you have to be able to figure out how to transition people from, from apprentice to journeyman to expert, right? What really happens right now is you have an apprentice, you need a journeyman. Your thirst, first thought process is, hey, I'm going to go poach a journeyman from another federal agency or a private company. And the private companies look at the federal government the same way. Instead of thinking about how do I take my apprentice that now has three years of experience, get them the certificates they need, you know, that kind of specialized training to move up to journeyman. In other words, to fully develop. Now, this doesn't apply and said that the military knows how to do this. And the Department of Defense has broadly got this right. But you'd be surprised at the degree to which the rest of the federal government does not have this in place. And, and, and you know, we came up with some recommendations on that. And we can we could talk about it. But we do have to figure out how to grow your own, you know, mid-level um, cybersecurity workforce. Um, so how... So how do we get there, right? Uh, and what is the military's role in doing this, right? I mean, the military has a major uh, demand, has set up the school sc- structure, has had that focus, uh, to, not to the degree I think that we want it to, but it's getting there. Each of the services are getting there uh, and trying to be as innovative as possible in doing that. Uh, understanding that there's also a lot of turnover in that workforce, right? I mean, something the military has a tendency of getting right, even, even if people look at it as say it's wasteful, wow. I mean, you spent two and a half years training somebody who was only in uniform for four years, you could argue there is a benefit for it and you have no idea who's going to stay in longer than that or not. Walk us through, you know, how do we get there from a national perspective in the military's role in helping satisfy that demand? You know, that's a great point. And, and the military is a great example of how to get a lot right. And I, and I will say the military, both uniform and non-uniform DOD, cybersecurity is in a much healthier position personnel-wise than the federal government and even, even the private sector. And a lot of that has to do with the military really does know how to train, educate and train its workforce. And we're very comfortable moving people from, you know, apprentice to journeyman as they travel from, you know, the E3 to E7 and, and, and O1 to O4 through the officer ranks. So we're, we're, the, I, the military is doing well. There's improvements they can make, but we can learn a lot from them. The first is we need to figure out how to recruit in 
and uh, and uh, bring on, you know, and hire the right personnel. Part of that is a we have a program called CyberCore Scholarship for Service. It is, you know, brazenly plagiarized from NSA's Center of Excellence program and the military's ROTC program. And, and what that is, is we have at 82 different universities and community colleges and community colleges around the country, we have 15 to 20 kids, uh, you know, students doing um, bachelor's or master's degrees in very specific cyber places where you need a bachelor's or master's degree to, um, you know, to, to uh, they get paid for two to, th they get two to three years of tuition and room and board. And then they owe the government three years of, of, uh, of service afterwards. And these are very high retention um, federal workers. Uh, they get their clearances done and they get their job selection done before they graduate. You know, so none of that kind of USA jobs nightmare, none of that waiting for your TSSCI to come through nightmare. That's all handled ahead of time. That's, you know, completely pirated from the military and NSA. It produces right now about 450 um, uh, government employees a year. It needs to produce about a thousand to get the right number in there. So we need to increase the funding, but there's a good idea that we've taken. That The other one is you have to, I have to give a lot of credit to a national initiative for cybersecurity education or NICE, which is a program at NIST, the National Infrastructure, uh, National um, Institute for uh, Standards and Technology at, at Commerce. That's kind of where we do a lot of our cybersecurity work. They've actually built a framework of like, I'll say 52 coded jobs that say, to do this kind of specific cybersecurity work, you need these skill sets. <clears throat> All we, we need to do now is code the jobs in the federal government to this nice framework, perfect, you know, um, uh, completely and comprehensively. A hand, you know, a percentage is done that way. This is mimicking how the Department of Defense does jobs with any with Navy enlisted classifications, with Army MOS, you know, military occupational specialty, all these. You know, it's mimicking that system in the private sector with good detailed job descriptions. If we could properly do this, you know, we could, uh, the OPM, then the Office of Personnel Management and the federal agencies could probably get their jobs rolled. And then the private sector mimics this, this nice framework in their job descriptions. And then people know how they can move around, what experience and qualifications they need to move between jobs. Again, mimicking the military system, I think we could really get places. And then finally, we need leadership. And as I've implied earlier, that leadership comes from the Office of the National Cyber Director at the White House. They need to run a, you know, a coordinating group and a steering group that kind of gives that guidance. It's the stick behind OPM's requests for, for information. It's the stick behind the NIST um, you know, NICE framework that says, if you don't adhere to this, you'll be in trouble. And it's the... Um, Finally, it's the, the budget review, you know, working with OMB, making sure that the right things are there. So what I gave you, there was a lot of ideas where if we mimic the military's commitment to this, I think we'll be in good shape. Uh, uh, really quickly, we've got about a minute left. Um, how, long, how big is our window? How quickly do we need to start addressing these workforce uh, challenges and do them in a concerted way? Is it a, is it a one year, two year, five year? What's, what's your time horizon? So my first caveat is we're 10 years late. In the context of we're 10 years late, we, we need to fix this. Anyone who tells you they'll have it fixed in the next year has got some snake oil you know, tucked away. It's a three to five year plan, I think. And that's if Chris Inglis in the Office of National Cyber Director can really grasp the, the handles of the federal government and work it hard to, towards a solution. I think it's three to five years. 
And then the private sector is going to take slightly longer because the private sector is dealing with 500,000 to 750,000 job openings. And depending how you define it, it could be the number of JCs staying in, in, the, in the low millions as well. But just the numbers I use are a little bit smaller. But broadly, you know, we have to... Um, we have to take a long, we have to understand this is three to five years. And that's assuming Congress passes the legislation that we're putting forward sometime in the next 12 months. If they don't, you can just add on month for month uh, to, to, to the end of this problem. And if we don't get personnel fixed, all that money we're putting in technology, all that effort we're putting into policy and processes is, is going to, it would not be wasted, but be made less effective. Uh, and uh, in about uh, 15, 20 seconds, uh, key themes at RSA from your standpoint. Now, I'm seeing a lot of questions here about how JCDC, the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative being run by, says it's going to work. There's a lot of, a, it has a lot of appeal here to the private sector. And Jenny Easterly's going around, you know, kind of preaching the, the, the message. I think there's some opportunity here to have real public-private collaboration. The government, though, has got to move it beyond like a a Slack channel and email and meetings and into a real-time collaboration sharing effort. If we can do that, it's going to be a big win for the public-private collaboration after 20 years of L's. Mark, thanks as always for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Have a great time out there in uh, San Francisco and look forward to having you back on again for an after action soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago. The Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is starting a listening tour of industry uh, to solicit thoughts on software and hardware bill of materials to help the agency improve the security of both software and hardware supply chains that are now vulnerable uh, at both the coding and on the component levels. This is a topic near and dear to our hearts. And joining us today are two executives from our sponsor, Fortress Information Security, Betsy Soren Jones, who is the company's chief operating officer, and Tobias Whitney, uh, who is the company's vice president for strategy and policy. And they're both joining us from the sidelines of the RSA conference in uh, sunny San Francisco. Uh, Betsy and Tobias, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, indeed, guys, uh, and it's great uh, to uh, have you guys both on. Uh, this is obviously a, a massive issue and one that we've covered uh, for many years, including with uh, folks from uh, your team. Uh, and it's an issue that became more prominent since the Log4j breach uh, last year. Uh, Tobias, start us off, right? For those people who don't fully appreciate what a software and hardware bill of materials are and why they're so important, why don't you explain what it is that they are and why it is they're so important? put it in context, I think many of the challenges with, with software and hardware bill materials start from how many critical infrastructures uh, initiated their, you know, their design processes of applications and technologies some 20, 25 years ago. Back then, they did a lot of custom development. Most of the technologies that they used to manage different, different parts of their infrastructure was custom design. They understood the components. They understood the software. They understood how the, the system would ultimately operate the critical infrastructure. Now, fast forward 20, 25 years in the future to where we are today, we're completely dependent on third-party vendors to provide uh, technology and software solutions. Um, with that transition, we've lost transparency. For all intents and purposes, uh, the technologies that we utilize to perform some of the most sensitive and critical operations um, in America or across the globe are incredibly dependent on a third party. And those third parties utilize uh, solutions and applications and architectures that may not be incredibly well known to their buyer. So that's ultimately the challenge that software bill of materials and hardware bill of materials is ultimately solving. It's providing transparency. It's giving 
uh, more control back to the purchaser, back to the ultimate user of that particular technology and understanding what components um, are existing within the technology, what those components do, uh, and ultimately um, how to manage uh, that particular technology so that it can potentially be more resilient against cyber-related events, um, allow you to be more reactive, more efficient, um, to address any, any new zero-day vulnerabilities, because ultimately what you want to be able to understand is what is the exposure, how is my particular talk, um, technology being exposed, and what components can I ultimately address, remediate, um, to mitigate those risks uh, in a manner that doesn't cause um, you know, an ultimate compromise that can, that can impact various aspects of critical infrastructure. So long story short, um, S-bombs and H-bombs provide labeling. They provide information, give you a, a good insight as to how that particular system um, is designed and how it operates and allows you to be more resilient um, uh, to prevent against cybersecurity breaches. Um, I, obviously, uh, security depends on visibility, and we're going to talk about that uh, in, in a moment. But Betsy, talk to us a little bit about Log4j. Uh, it was an inflection point. You were in the power industry uh, at, at that uh, point, um, even though it was self-evident about zero-day vulnerabilities, as uh, Tobias just mentioned. Um, you know, we've sort of whistled past this graveyard for a long time, but, but that was really a marked change. Talk to us uh, about what companies should be taking away from, from that uh, episode and, and, and your scars in that process working for one of the nation's leading utilities at the time. So I think, you know, when we got the call about Log4, you know, our first question was, well, how bad is the problem? And then we realized we don't have the information in order to make you know, a justification is whether this was a small event, whether this was a big event, you know, et cetera. And so if you go back to what Tobias talked about, the nitty gritty of it is you need an ingredient list. You have to understand what is sitting inside, what are, what is the code, what is the library, what is the index of all of the different applications that you're using. So if someone showed up at my front door and said, hey, log four, go find it. I didn't have the recipe list. So if you think about, you know, walking down a cereal aisle and you are, you know, you, you, you need something that's gluten-free, you turn the box around and you start to look to see if there is any ingredient in there that has gluten. Well, that's exactly what I needed to do for log four, but I didn't have an ingredient list and I didn't know where to even go get it. So, you know, I think that that was a huge wake up call just from an information sharing perspective across all practitioners, no matter what the industry is to say, wait a minute, we need a better way to cultivate the information. So when we do have an event, we can even figure out what the extent of condition is, number one, and then number two, start to prioritize. Because I think that that was our, our biggest challenge was how do we find it and how do we find it in the critical systems that we need to go after those vulnerabilities the fastest. And so when you're a true practitioner, the prioritization of the alarm bells going off is critical because obviously those systems are performing something in your infrastructure that's incredibly important and you want to be able to get to those first. Well, if you think about, you know, if I use the energy industry as an example, you know, one of the other things that we learned through Log4 was not all of us have to do it by ourselves. And so many of the applications, as Tobias talked about, you know, we are all using in, in our environments. So, you know, how do you do this in a way where, one, if you don't have the information that you need, is there a better model out of the gate when you're doing incident response to say, 
hey, maybe I'm going to go through, I'm going to scan these 10 applications, you go scan those 10 applications, then let's come back together and start to talk about what we found in a way to really kind of get all of the information in a quicker, better, faster, more efficient way. That's what we learned from Log4. What we have to do now is now try and get ahead of it. So what Log4 did was it showed us here is, are the exact pieces of information that we're going to need to successfully respond to an incident. But that's all already where the right of boom, how do we get left of boom and how do we start to do put in preventative measures, which is why this conversation is so critically important is because we do have an opportunity and a window of time to try and get ahead and try and get as much information as we possibly can cultivated before the next big incident happens. Um, so let's, uh, you know, you guys are a, a threat uh, intelligence company and improving security, as you said, right, is, is about visibility, is about that ingredients list. It starts with an SBOM uh, roadmap. Uh, Tobias, start us off, right? I mean, what do organizations have to do to build this list? Because it is staggering in its scope and scale, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's bad enough for a company. It is a titanic endeavor for, for an agency. Um, you know, and and a little bit about what you guys are going to be passing along to CISA as part of this uh, listening tour, and what do you, what do you think some of the themes will be, or or maybe why don't you take the first one, Tobias, and maybe Betsy, you take you take the second one about what it is you guys are going to be conveying uh, to CISA as they go through this listening tour. Go ahead, Tobias. Sure, sure. Yeah, usually where to start is just having a strong and effective asset list, um, an inventory of of you know, your asset management systems. Uh, ultimately, once you have all those assets, you understand what's, what functions are being performed where. The next step is, okay, let's apply the concepts of SBOMs and HBOMs, hardware, software, bill of materials. Because you want to be able to relate back um, to those particular assets when you find uh, functionality, when you find uh, vulnerabilities to understand well, what ultimately uh, could be um, impacting that asset based on the exposure of this particular technology. Uh, so one of the things that, that really we've been focusing on is providing a means to allow for industry to tap in this information, software, hardware, bill of materials, in a manner that is not overwhelming, in a manner that's very straightforward uh, and applying simple concepts to help the, the industry participant, the, the user understand the content. I mean, ultimately, this you're, you're right, it is a tremendous amount of content, so a tremendous amount of data, and it can be overwhelming, but you can manage it in such a way that you know, allows for you to quickly understand, okay, what are the critical um, subcomponents? What, functions are they performing, what vulnerabilities are associated with those particular functions, and how can I mitigate it? If you simplify uh, it along those lines and also provide some indications of where technologies are being developed, um, some understanding of their provenance, um, the, the, the origins of those technologies, then you can utilize the information in a bite-sized way and provide uh, content to the various practitioners within the organization so that they can take meaningful action uh, to that information. And that's ultimately our goal is to provide transparency, but in a manner that's digestible uh, for industry. Betsy, um, your your sense on that. And uh, specifically, what do you think some of the themes uh, are going to be that you guys and others are going to be passing along to CISA uh, as Jen Easterly and her team, uh, Alan Friedman uh, being on it as well and looking at supply chain? Uh, you know, what do you want them to be taking away from an industry view of this? I would say that, you know, step one, you know, that and reiterating what Tobias said about collecting the information, but then once you have it, what do you do with it? How do you make it actionable? And so, you know, if you go and you turn to any of the, the critical infrastructure sectors, especially, we're operators by day, always. 
And so what is our playbook? And I think that there's really two playbooks that we have to be cognizant of. The first is on the asset owner side. So those who have constructed the grid, those who are you know, working in the different governmental um, agencies, et cetera, what is important to you? What is your asset list? That's what you need to be working on and starting to prioritize from start to finish. What are the critical systems that you just can't live without? And understanding that at the same time, the other playbook needs to be with and working with, I'll say the third parties, the vendors, the manufacturers, they have to get ready to be able to provide that information when the asset owner knocks at their door. And so if I'm going to small and mid-sized businesses, I'm, I need to be able to say to them, here is the way that you need to collect this information. Here is the standardized form that you need to put it on. And here's where you need to deposit that information. So I think it's a you know, dual track model where the asset owners are busy building their asset inventory lists. They're trying to understand you know, what do they have, what is important to them, what can they not live without. At the same time, you're working with the vendor community to say, get ready, the next are gonna come start to prepare all of this information. And then we've got to standardize the way that it is put somewhere. And then once we get all, both of them and when the train tracks meet together, it's gonna allow us to understand and get better visibility to outstanding vulnerabilities. And so then how do you start to create the workflows really for the asset owners to say, hey, I now have the software bill of materials. I now have the hardware bill of materials. Your next step, is to go close out these open vulnerabilities that we have found. And so then it becomes a work down curve on the asset owner side of the house of things that they need to fix. Yes, it's big. Yes, it's monumental, but you start with what, how we do everything else, which is prioritize the critical stuff first and start to and start to work down that, that curve. Um, uh, we, we have uh, about 30 seconds left, Tobias. Let me ask you uh, this question. Is there anything on the hardware and software side that's unreplaceable? I mean, right, are, are there any component or, or, or does the North American or allied or safe industrial base uh, supply chain have um, sufficient replacements at a hardware and software level for things that we are looking at that might be unsafe now? Yeah, no, no. Supply chains are are challenged at this point. There's a you know a definite deficit in, in terms of availability of certain critical infrastructures. No doubt about it. Uh, so the concept is not necessarily rip and replace. The concept is understanding what is ultimately vulnerable. How do we go about mitigating that in a manner that doesn't cause disruption uh, to our operations from a critical infrastructure perspective? But there's there's no doubt that there's a significant significant challenge um, in today's economy in terms of providing and, and, and having access to, to critical systems. So, so we want to use H-bombs and S-bombs to manage that risk, but not be in a situation where industry feels like they have to risk and rip, risk, rip and replace technologies um, that are absolutely vital to their operations. Betsy and Tobias, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolutely uh, great topic, uh, fascinating uh, and certainly one that we want to uh, continue to follow up on because I think it's critically important, right? It, it doesn't matter as, as, uh, if you have the best bombers, ships, and air, you know vehicles in the world if they can't uh, get underway uh, for whatever reason. Uh, really appreciate it. Best of luck to you guys. Enjoy San Francisco and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.